0: Well, if you have a Bible, go ahead and flip to the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to finish out this study on Ecclesiastes by looking at chapter 11, verse 7, and then we're going to go into chapter 12 and finish the book. I'm calling this message, War Torn Joy, and this is our final, the ninth and final sermon in this series. Um, While you're turning there, I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we'll get started. Our Father in God, we ask and pray that your word would uh, awaken our consciences, would would, would, would our conscience be stirred, our affections be stirred, Um, would you enlighten our minds and convict our souls, all for your glory and for the sake of the kingdom of Messiah the Prince. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So we have come to the final section of Ecclesiastes, and the verdict is in. We have a decision to make. Will we succumb to the temptation of gross negligence of God's created order and the vanity found therein? Will we complain about work, complain about the rain despite God's times and seasons, and in general find ourselves being curmudgeons about what God has given us? Will we be ultimately autonomists or will we be theonomists? And if we choose the latter, what might that entail? So let's examine the preacher's final words of this long treatise on well-fettered, war-torn joy. Verse 7 of chapter 11, and we're going to just work our way through it, and I'll make some comments as we go. Chapter 11, verse 7, The light is pleasant, and it is good for the eyes to see the sun. Like light life is meant to be enjoyed. That's part of the point of Ecclesiastes. Seeing the sun isn't about simply living, it's about living joyfully. To to taste and see, something the Bible speaks of a lot, is to partake and enjoy. First we taste, then we really see. Though the preacher seems to have only given us a good picture of utter despondency, the truth is, he says that Life is not only good in and of itself, it's supposed to be enjoyed, it's supposed to be savored with excitement, no less. That said, we should enjoy life, and by God's grace we can. Verse 8, Indeed, if a man should live many years, let him rejoice in them all, and let him remember the days of darkness, for there will be many. Everything that is to come will be futility, he says. So no one can rewind his life, which means joy is to be apprehended today, not tomorrow. And why is that? Well, everyone faces the urgency of death. The light of one's earthly light uh, will eventually go dark, he says. Um, So rejoice now, for this pre-resurrection life is unreliable. Um, Delay, uncertainty, perplexity, difficulty, a lot of the things we covered in the last message... Demand an active pursuit of joy, not passivity. Verse 9. Rejoice, young man, during your childhood, and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood. And follow the impulses, or the ways, of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. We must embrace, he says, our youthful state, and we should also steer clear of evil. Um, let your heart, he, he says, follow, know. The, the preacher is obviously assuming action on our part. We, we must pursue these things. If joy is deep down in the crevices of your heart, then follow that heart. And, and of course, we know from the Bible, the heart is the center of, of your being, who you are. So eyes are the instrumentation of the heart, Job 31.7. In your youthful pursuit... Know that God brings judgment, or the judgment, for this is a definite article in, uh, in the Hebrew language. God brings the judgment. The emphasis is God's sovereign power in and through history, something we forget and sometimes we fail to consider. God is a God of justice, so fear him accordingly. Verse 10, so remove grief and anger from your heart and put away pain from your body because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting there is a negative aspect too we are told the positive now we have the the negative remove vanity induced vexation from your heart that's something we're supposed to do remove vanity induced vexation from your heart don't give in to wanton speculation and nor should you give in to cynicism We should also remove the physical barriers in our lives, which prevent us from the joy of the Lord. Why should we pursue joy and mortify sin? That's the question. Well, life is fleeting, and God is the just judge. And honestly, that's motivation enough. Flip to chapter 12, verse 1. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come. And the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. Life is a vapor. So in order to maximize the joy that is set before you, children, you're listening, right? You must remember your creator. Days can be distressing. If you fail to orient your life and orient your lives in terms of God and God's plans, you will not experience the joys of Christ. So, in other words, neglecting God means neglecting joy, and this we should never do. Verse 2, he's going to get into some imagery um, which describes the inevitability of vanity in life. He says in verse 2, Before the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are darkened, and clouds return after the rain. In that day, uh, he's going to give us symptoms of old age, in that day, The watchmen of the house tremble, those are your arms. The mighty men stoop, your legs. The grinding ones stand idle because they are few, your teeth. And those who look through windows grow dim, your eyes. And the doors on the street are shut, your ears, as the sound of the grinding mill is low. You end up with hearing loss. And one will arise at the sound of the bird, that's um, somebody who's an erratic sleeper, Uh, an early riser, and all the daughters of song will sing softly, in other words, vocal cords diminish. He says to remember your creator before the economic order of your body falls apart. He goes on, verse 5, furthermore, men are afraid of a high place, they're afraid of heights, and of terrors on the road, Um, they're more susceptible or vulnerable to attack. The almond tree blossoms, hair turns white. The grasshopper drags himself along. Uh, you, can't, you can't jump anymore, so you, you, when you're older you, you limp along. And the caperberry is ineffective. Sexual desire wanes. For man goes to his eternal home while mourners go about in the street. In other words, death awaits our appointment. Remember him before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed. The pitcher by the well is shattered and the wheel at the cistern is crushed. Um, the value of life in its final deteriorative state is, is basically likened to a lamp whose cord is broken and the bowl then falls to the floor completely shattered. Um, that's what life, life is. Verse 7, Then the de- Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. This, this final ignominy is, or, or, or shame is, is this. Creation is, in a sense, reversed. Um, man returns to the ground from whence he came. That's where this is all headed. When we die, the animation of God's spirit breath is gone. That, that animation, what we call our soul, goes to God forever. And then he ends the book where he started the book. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity, all is Hevel, it is a vapor mist. So he concludes those thoughts basically where he started in the very beginning of the book. And now he gives us an epilogue, verse 9. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, and he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. Um, Solomon wrote much of the book of Proverbs, and of course Song of Solomon, which is on on uh, the very next page of your Bible. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. Uh, he, he tells us his mission. His mission was an honest one. He, he, he's not a nihilist, nor is he a pessimist. Um, the words in this book are, are meant to be delightful. They're meant to induce joy in our lives. Uh, they're meant to, to to be truthful. They are truth, he says. And when truth is heated, um, you know that's Truth is heated; joy is the result. Verse 11, The words of wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. So wise words are goads, he says, which are large pointed stakes um, that prod animals along. You would use for ox and, and so on. And, and the wise um, oxen would sometimes, of course, need a little prodding. They're hefty animals. But the wise wise man who listens to the wise words, he says, is like a nail pounded into wood. But it's not pounded into wood by an unruly, uncaring carpenter, but by a shepherd king who cares for you. Wisdom moves us like a goad, and it holds our lives together like a nail holds together wood. Verse 12, But beyond this, my son, be warned, The writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. Um, (laughs) Kind of a funny verse that's usually used uh, sort of tongue-in-cheek, but with print-on-demand, books are rather easy to produce these days. Um, Not so much in the ancient world when clay tablets were used or even papyrus. Um, He says wisdom is good, but don't let it ruin you because your pursuit of it could actually wear you down. That's his warning. Verse 13. And this is his final conclusion. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is this. Fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. So the entire, the entire message of Ecclesiastes is summarized here. Fear God, keep his commandments. Keep his law. That's the chief end of man. Fear God, keep his commandments. Um, our fear of God, that's our worship, Drives our law keeping, which is our conduct. So, in other words, knowledge leads to obedience, not the other way around. And he says, This is the whole of man. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. And we saw this in chapter 3, verse 14, and chapter 11, verse 9. God brings everything, even the hidden stuff, into his divine courtroom for assessment. He is the judge. And this is a life of faith. We rejoice, we remember, he says, to do these things. Rejoice, remember, um, we're to fear, and we're to keep. So let's pull out some application as we consider this um, final message of Ecclesiastes. So Ecclesiastes is a giant cattle prod. Like a goad, wisdom is supposed to guide and direct our lives. Left to ourselves, we'd spend our days in the ditch but this is not at all God's plan. As Christians who are called to walk the path of Jesus our Lord, wisdom is most certainly one of the things that we need to pack for the journey. So what is wisdom? Well, wisdom, we've said it a lot in this series, but wisdom is knowledge put into practice. Knowing something, doing something. Wisdom is the maturation and, uh, of the whole of one's being, so that he or she functions in complete obedience and complete submission to Christ. So wisdom comes along, and as the preacher has said, this, this wisdom is like a nail being driven or, or a goad being poked into the rear of an ox. So I, I take this to mean that sometimes wisdom hurts. Sometimes it hurts. Um, wisdom has some bumps and bruises And this is because none of us comes out of the womb with lives marked by full-blown wisdom and maturity. Um, It's going to take falling down. It's going to take some scratched knees, some grass-stained pants. That's just the nature of life, and working and growing and maturing. So in a a lot of ways, um, the truth of Ecclesiastes can be likened to sandpaper. Wisdom, like sandpaper, can be rough for the untreated, foolish person, and like wood. The wood needs to be shaped and molded into a suitable frame in order to be used by some creative visionary of a carpenter. In order to shape it and mold it, it has to be cut to size and smoothed over. Sandpaper, we know, is rough, but it's for the good of the piece of wood. Wisdom for the fool is rough, but it's for the good of the person. Now, it's one thing to say that this is the case. It's another thing to demonstrate it. If you recall from earlier in our study, I emphasized that Ecclesiastes pushes the antithesis. Uh, It explores the terrain of the realm of the absurd. That's what Ecclesiastes is all about. It it pushes all of the limits of foolishness and imprudence. Uh, The preacher has spent 12 chapters outlining all the profundities he could muster up. He, he also touches um, on the extraordinary circumstances surrounding injustice, surrounding death, wealth, and basic living in God's created order. So the point has not been to embrace the, the morbidity of sin, death, and, and rebellion as if those things come to us from the hand of a sadistic God. The preacher is, contrary to what is normally said about the book, the preacher is not depressed, Albeit he does spell out for us the dangers of, of things like unbridled ambition, unbridled ambition. Excuse me, um, something he has personal experience of, no doubt. So the book is not meant to put you in a state of depression. It's meant to put you in a state of war torn joy, and I would also add um, victorious war torn joy. But why do I call it war torn joy? The complexities of life are what they are because God has chosen for it to be thus. Not that he is sadistic. um, It is God's created order, and we were the ones that had chosen to mess it up. And as a result, there is a time to laugh, and there's a time to cry. There's a time to live. There's a time to die. People are born. People die. Life goes on. And, um, you know, not to break to you, (laughs) but I'm going to break it to you anyway. Um, you're, you're more than likely to be forgotten about. And that's kind of the way it is. That's the vanity of life. So man cannot make straight that which God has made crooked. Um, when God determined to make a triangle out of three sides, he didn't do it so that we could call him a liar by making a triangle out of, with four sides. That's not how it works. Um, remember, we are not in a position to judge the judge. But Kohaleth here, the preacher, has explored everything, wives, wealth, and wine. He's had it all, all of the W's, wives, wealth, and wine. Um, wisdom, he says, excels folly, yet wisdom itself sometimes um, seems to come up short in life. Um, there is oppression, perhaps there is a better way to have never been, Maybe there's, um, maybe it's better to never have been born, he says earlier. Um, there, there is wealth in the world. Perhaps it's better to be alone and enjoy it yourself. Um, there's poverty. Well, maybe it's just better to be dead. See, poor men become kings. Kings never listen, and on and on we go on the political merry-go-round. He, he's touched on all of these things. And what I'm suggesting is that true joy is a war-torn joy. It's joy in the midst of the vanity. It's a fight to be satiated by the gift of Jesus in the gospel in the midst of the blessings and problems of life. It's a conscious decision to remain faithful during the battle. War-torn joy is much more preferable than, than a pliable, superficial joy that's dictated by circumstances and only circumstances. Out of all the situations that Solomon put himself through, His conclusion is the same every single time, and it's our decision to make. What will we do with it? And this is what he tells us in this last section. Rejoice in your childhood, remove grief, remember your Creator, fear God, and keep His commandments. This, I'm arguing, is the formula for war-torn joy in your life. Rejoice in your childhood, Remove grief, remember your creator, fear God, and keep his commandments. Well, let's go through each one of those. The first he says is to rejoice in your childhood. That's in chapter 11, verse 9. Children, do not waste time with foolishness. Do not waste time with foolishness. Your parents aren't raising children to be children, they are raising children to be godly men and women. So, your job. Children, is to do what the catechism teaches you to do. Why did God make you and everything in the world? Well, for his glory. And so how can you glorify God? By loving him and doing what he commands. You see, you're never too young to start your lifelong journey of loving God and doing what he commands. You are never, as it turns out, too old either. Number two, remove grief. Chapter 11, verse 10. If you're going to experience war-torn joy in your life, you have to remove its impediments. There are real obstacles to cultivating joy, and they always, without fail, start with the heart that is largely unsettled. When our hearts are fixated on covetousness or greed or conceit or licentiousness, it is in a state of unsettled turmoil. So do not be deceived. Idols do not bring Settling comfort, the settling comfort of peace and tranquility. They dismay us. They injure us. So mortification is a key component to war-torn joy. So repent for your anger, repent for your lust, repent for your murmuring, and so on. That is how we remove grief. Remove it from your heart. Surgically, do spiritual surgery with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Number three, remember your Creator chapter 12 verse 1 we are told to remember because we are prone to forget we are prone to wander and we do so with this uncanny amnesia so remember your Creator in the days of your youth because we all look back and all of us wish we had more time it is not as though time though moves faster recall that increased wisdom means increased vexation Time doesn't move faster as we grow older. Our perception of the past and the present, however, grows dim. So don't waste your youth and don't waste your life. Remember your Creator, as He is the only true anchor for the soul. Number four, fear God. Chapter 12, verse 13. The preacher's conclusion, like the rest of his argumentation, runs contrary to human wisdom. And this is because it is God's wisdom. And God's wisdom is always, each and every time, one step ahead. The key component to the wisdom equation, which is a key component to war-torn joy, is a healthy, reverential admiration for God. Fear God. When we fear God, we realize his unchanging power and justice. And that goes back to chapter 3, verse 14. This is justice delivers us from wickedness outside and self-righteousness on the inside that's chapter 7 verse 18 fearing god is the beginning of wisdom but guess what it's also the end as well there is no progress in christianity when fear is left behind when fear of god is left behind see fearing god is the first step it is our worship of god in every area of life in all of our work, and all of our business, and all of our recreation, all of our planning, all of our uh, you know, family life, etc., and so on, a fear of God must be ever-present. If it is not present, it will be squashed. Fear is knowledge. Knowledge is where it all starts. And lastly, he says, uh, keep his commandments, chapter 12, verse 13. See, if a reverence for God is the first step, then obedience, of course, is the second step. Knowledge of God precedes obedience to God. You can't obey God to the fullest if you don't know what it is he requires. So the end of the matter is fear and obedience, knowledge and wisdom, worship and obedience. That right there is war-torn joy. See, these five imperatives listed are the key ingredients. They are the keys to the car. If you remember the car, we've been talking about that throughout this series. Everyone made in the image of God gets a car. They get a car. And to be made in the image of God is to have that car. It's yours to have. So, But, but the only, um, only the regenerate, though, gets the keys to the car. And only the regenerate, those who are elect, those who are in Christ, can make the car do what it's designed to do to take your friends out, go to the to the mountains to see the the wonders of God's creation and so on to to enjoy it. Um, That's your life. That's joy. That's war-torn joy means that there's some mileage on the car. You've been places, you've seen some stuff, you've had a few oil changes, and you've had a few detailing jobs. You've changed out the tires, you've washed it clean with the soap of repentance Why should you take the car and use it? Well, because of verse 14. God brings it all into judgment, everything hidden, whether good or evil. When you've cursed the car, when you've abused the car, when you've forgotten the oil change, when you've refused to change the wiper blades, God knows it all. When you've done that with your life, God knows it all. He knows if you have taken the car and hidden it under a large tarp. He knows where it's been. He knows how many miles are on it, and he knows where those miles came from. See, remember and fear the maker of this car. That's ultimately where Kohaleth is going. Remember who the owner is. Remove all the impediments and obstacles that make the car fall into disrepair. Above all, drive it the way the maker says to drive it. That's your life. Remove the impediments. Respect the owner. Enjoy the vehicle. Serve God with the vehicle. See, the the joy you can have reflecting the image of God that's been restored to you in the gospel of Jesus Christ, all the sin forgiving, all the justice granting, everything, will turn that car into a classic, which is pleasing in the sight of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the message of Ecclesiastes. Um, There's so much packed into 12 chapters, and we're thankful that we are able to look at it, to glean from it, to learn from the wisdom you gave Solomon. And we ask and pray, Father, for this war-torn joy to be present in our lives, that, that our children and our families and all of us would um, together uh, experience that joy, um, but not in a way that's, that's relegated to just the personal and, and the private, but to experience the fullness of the gospel of the kingdom, And all of its realities um, not just in our prayer but in our activism not just in our Bible reading but in our proclamation Um, all of our we we desire God to live our lives completely all into you and so I pray um, God in a time of a lot of uncertainty um, that truth would prevail I I do pray that the church would experience this war-torn joy um, and that your spirit would be the one to grant it. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.